Have we finally found all the Biden classified documents? And does Ron DeSantis oppose studying African-American history? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Philip Phil Klein, and the sage of authenticity, Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Dividend Cafe. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And please, if you like what you hear here, give this podcast a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, it's uh, become parodic. We have found more Biden classified documents. The FBI finally, after sitting around for a month and a half and letting Biden's private lawyers who don't have security clearances conduct incompetent searches for classified material, they, obviously they're, they're missing stuff, finally engages in a consensual search at Biden's Wilmington home for hours and turns up yet more classified documents. You know what I'm going to ask, Jim? What do you make of it? <laughs> well, with classified documents, you can make them into paper airplanes. You can make them into <laughs> using the airplane line. Um, so I think one of the one, by the one of the revelations was that apparently some of these documents may go back to Joe Biden's days in the Senate, uh, not just from his time as the vice president. And I, I, you kind of look at this and you're like, okay, based on what we see now, it sounds like despite all the rules and despite all the regulations and despite the really hefty penalties that are inflicted upon those who break the law if they are not famous and if they are a lower level government employee with security clearance who takes classified documents home. Uh, that apparently it sounds like this stuff happens, if not all the time, that it certainly is not uncommon for high level lawmakers to have some classified documents for it to get mixed in with their personal papers and for them to take it home. This is bad. Uh, however, this does add a little bit of perspective to what we were, you know, people were treating the Trump documents in Mar-a-Lago as the greatest national security document scandal of all time. And I kind of have, you know, people like, well, why, why, why don't, why, why does the National Archives make a bigger deal out of this? Why doesn't the FBI make a bigger deal out of this? Um, you look at this and you're realizing, okay, well, partially because it would require the intelligence community to uh, attempt to enforce penalties upon elected officials who have the authority to fire <laughs> their directors. I mean, how would you like to be uh, Burns or Gas, uh, Gina Haspel or, or you know, Tenet or anybody else like that and going and say, Mr. President, you didn't return that document. And if you didn't bring it back, I'm going to have to, you know, instruct the attorney general to press charging. You know, nobody can do that. <laughs> you're, once you reach that level of government, you're more or less untouchable. And this is the consequence is that nobody pays much attention to returning all those classified documents when they should. So not a lot has changed since last last week. I think the most, in, there are two interesting questions. Uh, there was a staff editorial, and I think Andy wrote about this, about, um, the fact that the Biden team did not notify law enforcement, the Biden team notified the White House, or you know, and the second thing is, is that this all started with this search of do going through the documents at the Biden Penn Center, and they say, well, it's because they're moving out of the office, but we haven't gotten any answer. Why are they moving out of the office? What what mm -hmm. prompted that? They, these documents have moved several times. Nobody went through them. My mm -hmm. sneaking suspicion is that this is you know, people, somebody saw Biden on sixty Minutes saying, how could anybody be so irresponsible? And mm -hmm. uh, 
somebody around Biden said, are we sure we yeah. didn't keep any of ours? Right. And that, that prompted somebody to go through those documents then. Yeah. So, Phil, Jim mentioned the editorial and Andy's work on this. So it, the Biden team says, oh, we we're totally transparent. We reported it immediately. But the, the key question is, to whom were they reporting it? So the, the Biden private lawyers take it to the Biden White House. And the Biden White House doesn't say, oh, oh my gosh, this is evidence of a potential crime. It has to be reported immediately to the Justice Department. No, they report it to the National Archives. And clearly the hope was that the National Archives would say, oh, gosh, thanks so much. You, you folks are so transparent. Th thanks for turning these over. We'll just file them over in this cabinet right here. And that would be the end of the matter. No one would ever know about it. It would be a total non-event and a non-story. But the IG at the National Archives reports it to the Justice Department. And of course, the Justice Department, uh, it, 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 um, Gar Gar uh, Garland throws it over to the, this, this guy to, to, to take a uh, look at who you know, ha has a little, little uh, credibility, but he doesn't immediately go, oh, we need a special counsel because it's an inherent conflict. That doesn't happen until CBS reports the discovery of these documents at the Penn Center for, uh, dating on uh, November Second, and by that time, the, the Biden team had turned up the garage documents on December 20th. And when the CBS story hits, they don't say, oh, yeah, OK, now, now that you mention it, <laughs> let, we'll, we'll let you know. We also found these other documents. They didn't they didn't self-report that. Um, and, and so I, obviously they're hoping that this would never be public. And when it did become public, hoping that hoped that it would be minimized and uh, didn't work out for them. Yeah, well, what to me is just remarkable is that given all this stuff happened, it's just amazing that Biden goes out there and leans so far into the whole Mar-a-Lago thing. You know, like Jim said about 60 minutes and so forth, saying, like, how could anyone be so irresponsible and that sort of stuff? It's just pretty amazing to me because even if you say, okay, there are differences that Trump was more brazen um, and the uh, Biden was more confined and so forth and Biden cooperated. Um, it's still not a totally clean thing. I mean, it's moved beyond, oh, well, there were just a few documents they stumbled upon and they immediately informed law enforcement and everything and they're fully cooperating. It's clearly not you know, more case. I mean, we've had multiple cases where with each search, they somehow find more documents. And as Jim said, we're going back to the, to the Senate now. And, um, and on top of it, it's, it's clear that as you said, and as our editorial states, it's not, they weren't as transparent as they let on. Um, but another thing to, to Jim's point in, in a larger sense I think we have either one of two things here, which is one, that it's sort of common, right? That's one of the defenses of Biden, that this is sort of a common type of thing. Well, if that's the case, I think we have a much bigger problem, because if you think about all of the cabinet officials, ex-former -pre presidents, um, lawmakers, senators, and so forth that theoretically have this, you know, could do this, then it might be a much bigger problem than we have. I mean, do we need to start searching the residences of Bush and Obama 
um, and of all the the sort of retired uh, officials who had high clearances, do we need to go through John Boehner's uh, uh, homes and everyone, you know, Diane Feinstein's house and all these people? Because uh, if it is sort of a fairly routine type of thing, then theoretically there are all sorts of these. This is sort of a big signal to our enemies that maybe if they want to infiltrate a not super secured um, residence of some ex-official that they might be able to dig up stuff. So Charlie, the, the natural tendency of anyone in politics is to, to try to hide embarrassing stuff and m- minimize disclosures, but it's almost, you know, they wouldn't have wanted this to happen, obviously, before the election, but it's almost as if they would have been better off if uh, every, everything had been handled sort of in a regular manner from the beginning, and you would have had the FBI uh, learn about this uh, and say, okay, well, we're going to go search everywhere where there might be, uh, every other place where there might be classified documents and and find all the stuff in, in one uh, fell swoop rather than have this drip drip, which has been the most uh, damaging aspect of the uh, last, last couple of weeks for Biden. I think Biden has screwed this up about as badly as it was possible to screw this up. All you have to do to ascertain whether or not this is a problem for Biden, is asked two questions. The first question is, is this made up from whole cloth? It's not. And the second question is, given that it's not, is this the sort of thing Biden would want to happen to him? We can argue all day about whether Trump's infraction was worse. I think it was. But the case that Biden is now having to present to the American public is he did it too, or he hit me harder. That's not the case he wanted to make. The case he wanted to make to the public is I am good, he is bad. And that is not a case that he can make. It's not a case that he seems to have thought about in too much detail before he took the step of raiding Mar-a-Lago. And it's not a case he has thought about too much, given the way this has come out. And the, the worst word you can prepend to any political headline is more. Any headline, really. Bodies found in lake is bad. More bodies found in lake is a scandal. More documents discovered is worse than documents discovered. And yet, by the manner in which he has treated this case, Biden has ensured that we have seen that headline three times. The interview that Jim mentioned, where Biden said, how could anyone be so responsible, is just as applicable to him. Trump's problem is not his irresponsibility so much as his total lack of contrition. Insofar as there are differences between these cases, that difference lies in the recalcitrance of Trump relative to the sometimes uh, apologies we've heard from Biden. Although he's now begun to muddy the water by saying he has no regrets and suggesting that reporters move on to other topics and saying there's no there there and so on. But the irresponsibility part is just as applicable to Biden. 
If, as he implied in that interview, it's sickening to see images of documents where they should not be, that applies to his garage as well. So he set himself up. He set himself up. And I don't think this is out of character for Biden because I think Biden is a bungler. We have since 2019, but not before, of course, because it wasn't necessary to pretend. We have seen an attempt to turn Biden into something he's not. Competent, moderate, grandfatherly, kind, bridge builder. But he's not. He's a not particularly intelligent, vicious partisan who clings to public office because he's not great at anything else. Of course he screwed this up in this way. And the fact that Donald Trump was the alternative does not change that. There are many criticisms that we can level at other politicians. But do you not think most of them would have looked into this before they made a big deal? (laughs) (laughs) Their opponents in fraction. Do you not think most of them would (laughs) would have closed off this avenue prior to ordering, even if you think it was justified, a raid or legitimate search of a presidential candidate's house. I mean, this just defies belief. And I think it should do a great deal of damage to the lie that Biden is a welcome return to normality and competence. He's not. He's been found to have classified documents in his possession that go all the way back to his tenure in the Senate before he was president, before he was vice president. This is a a, a self-inflicted wound. And the fact that Donald Trump's behavior is as ever awful doesn't change that. So, Jim, none of us, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, have been high-level government officials and uh, we, we do have you know, the examples of, of Trump and, and Biden here. So maybe uh, what, what Phil's warning is maybe we need to look at what, you know, what Bush has and what Obama has and what Dianne Feinstein has, et cetera, uh, has, has some force. On the other hand, you, you talk to people and, and this doesn't happen to everyone. You know, Joe Manchin was on TV Sunday. He's like, oh, you know, what happens? You go into the skiff, you look at the, the documents, then uh, when you're, you, you, you put them back. And then when you're leaving, the guy at the door says, hey, are you clean? Meaning, are you sure you're not taking anything out? And then you double check and then you walk out and you walk out without classified documents. I was talking to someone who served in a a bunch of administrations at high levels and handled a lot of classified material. He's like, yeah, you know, it's a locked cabinet in your office. Then you take it out and then you put it in the back of the locked cabinet. Or you want to make sure that you yourself don't mess anything up. You hand it to your, uh, after you've looked at it, you give it to your assistant. And, and he or she deals with it to make sure you're not just accidentally putting in into your briefcase. So it's not as though it's, it's beyond the power of man to handle this stuff responsibly. Yeah. And look, you know, it, it's, this is yet another case of where the laws apply to the little people. But if you're powerful enough, famous enough, then everybody wants to hand wave it away as, ah, that's how it has. Bill Clinton had gone out and defended Sandy Berger. Ha, oh, Sandy Berger, man, he he was always so disorganized. You know, like the idea of this is, you know, yeah. misplacing <laughs> something. You know. We all, we all end up with chopped up classified documents in our pants. At the, exactly, in our socks. <laughs> right, right. You know. um, look, I, I think just to pick on something that, uh, pick up on something that Charlie had emphasized, 
This isn't anywhere near the consequences of the Afghanistan withdrawal, but I wonder if this this is kind of that similar. You look at Biden's approval rating, and you can see that that was the turning point, right? That there was you know favorable race was above unfavorable until then. It reversed, and it's been about the same. Biden's recovered a couple of points, but it's really been in the you know low forties at the highest lately. And I kind of wonder if this is just one more point of exhaustion of the American people of like, no, this isn't a return to competence. This is the grownups mm-hmm. are not in charge. The adult, it's, it's like, oh, come on, get off it, Joe Biden. You know, mm-hmm. you're every bit as incompetent as the last guy. You're every bit as uh, oblivious to the rules or don't care about the rules or you can't stop talking about how great you are and how bad the other guys are. And it turns out you're doing the same thing. Blah, blah, blah. Enough mm-hmm. of this. And the moment he does, like, well, you know, there's a lock in my Corvette, like that matters. You know, it, he um, that that in the end, he's not that different from his predecessor, and that should be a point mm-hmm. of shame to Democrats and a reason they don't need another four years of this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, another thing that that gives us added resonance is just that it's funny, right? I mean, the, the garage and Corvette thing is hilarious. Just that that he was so righteous about this, and now you have m- multiple. <laughs> Uh, discoveries of classified documents on a rolling basis. So Phil Klein, X a question to you. You think this will still be a hot going issue uh, in in the headlines uh, three months from now, six months from now, 12 months from now, forever? I'd say maybe three months from now, uh, less so six to 12 months. Though I would say that it could have ramifications if it potentially continues to get bad over the next three months and maybe tempts someone to to primary Biden because everyone assumed that there was going to be a lot of pressure for him to step aside and not run again. And then he did, they over, Democrats overperformed in the midterms. So suddenly that put that uh, to bed, but now the talk has sort of resurfaced again in the wake of the scandal. And so that I think could be the long-term repercussions of it is that you might see some people sitting on the wings, you know, does it Gavin Newsom maybe say, you know what, maybe we don't, I don't sit around and wait. And, and Biden hasn't formally um, announced that he's going to run. Right. He hasn't formal. I mean, all indications are is that he plans to run. But the way this could complicate things is if this is while this is in the headlines, you you don't want to announce you're running at that time. So, Mm -hmm. you know, but he kind of has to announce he's running to discourage others from doing so. So it, it I think that it might have longer term implications um, and domino effects, but I don't think that we're going to be talking about the documents it's themselves in a year from now. Okay, so maybe we got from Phil, maybe three months, but but not six, 12 months. Where are you, Charlie? Well, I think that depends. I don't know the precise mechanics of how this might happen because I'm not especially au fait with law enforcement, but if a special counsel were to look into this matter and unfortunately for Biden in eight or nine months realize that one of those documents was particularly important and include this fact in his report, then you're not going to see it disappear in three months. It's going to pop back up. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so happens, while I think uh, it will uh, go on. Sorry, I, I was just going to, since we're speculating, I wonder what happens if the special counsel recommends an indictment. Now that would be private, presumably, but also the kind of material that would be likely to leak. And then the Justice Department doesn't do it because you know you can't do it according to the guidelines and indict a sitting president. That would be, that would have a uh, uh, legal yeah. mark. I mean, if if he wants the indictment recommendation to leak, he should just send it to Joe Biden and no one else. And wait for <laughs> I, I think the problem that Biden has here is that ceteris paribus, this will all disappear in three months. But if there are more documents found or the special counsel publishes a report that is damning or, as you say, if he were to recommend an indictment, then of course it's not going to go away. And you don't want to be in that position as a vulnerable presidential re-election candidate. This is mm-hmm. bad timing for Biden. Mm-hmm. This could... There's a hostage abortion aspect to it. Yeah, and I understand there are some rules around uh, indictments and releases and so on that uh, obtain when a presidential or other electoral candidate is uh, involved. But I, I don't think there would be anything in the rule book that precludes the report being published next March, March of 2024, when the Republican primary is coming to an end and the anti-Joe Biden campaign begins. I wouldn't want this out there. Tim Garrity. Well, as usual, it, it depends on what they find. But I think if there's an effort to go forward with an indictment on Trump, then you'll hear a lot more screaming about this. And it all depends on, you know, how many more times they find documents in some Biden, you know, real estate or home or office or something like that. Um, so it all depends, but uh, I, I think it'll, it'll gradually fade. But again, the lingering damage to whatever remaining reputation for competence Biden has, mm-hmm. uh, I think will last, you know, beyond six months, 12 months, et cetera. Yeah, it'll be ongoing count against him. It'll be something that's remembered about his presidency. But I, I'm, I guess I'm with with you and, and Phil. Is some somewhere th- three to six months, I would see it fading. And th- there's just now a major incentive to to let the Trump thing go as well, and just put this whole whole phase of our our national political debate behind us. With that, let's hear from our sponsor of this episode, Dividend Cafe. The state of today's economy seems confusing, vulnerable, and even concerning to many. And that has widespread implications, not just for business owners, job seekers, and consumers, but also for investors. This is where our friends at the Bonson Group come in to provide solutions, clarity, and wisdom in the monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical instability of our day. Led by our own David Bonson, the Bonson Group manages over $4 billion of client capital and has become the leading independent private wealth management firm in the country, guiding investors to positive returns in 2022, even as the stock market wallowed in a bear market. Their deep commitment to dividend growth investing to a philosophical foundation that is not shaken and stirred by the headlines of the day. Warrant your attention. Check out DividendCafe.com to learn more about the Bonson Group today. You'll find free weekly economic commentary at DividendCafe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bonson Group, you can do so from that website. So go to DividendCafe.com for your antidote to the laziness and groupthink of today's index investing insanity and discover a more bespoke and tailored solution worthy of your portfolio and financial needs. So Charlie Cook, no surprise. What's today? Tuesday. So there's a new controversy in Florida that's getting national attention this time 
has to do with a, a pilot AP African-American studies course crafted by the college board. And Florida has said, you know what? Uh-uh-uh, we're not doing this. They claim, uh, they argue that the course violates Florida uh, law, uh, that the Stop Woke uh, Act, I think, in particular. And this is a little bit of a black box or has been a little bit of a black box because the college board said, hey, this is proprietary material. We're not releasing it. So we don't know what they're or didn't know what they're arguing about. But our own Stanley Kurtz has been on this from the beginning, writing about it months ago. He got the teacher guide for this course, uh, filled in some details. There is a website down in Florida that got hold of the basic curriculum, published that, and Florida came out with a um, a, a breakdown of aspects of this course that they, they think cross the line. What's clear is that there are three parts to this course. And the first three parts, they seem okay. You know, there's, there, there's some language in there that should set off alarm bells. But the fourth part, which gets into contemporary issues, is obviously highly politicized and biased. I do not consider this to be... A structural question. I often see politics through a structural lens. Should government be doing this? Which level of government should be doing this? And I don't consider this to be a free speech question either. I consider this to be a bread and butter, on the merits, political matter. That is to say that this is why we have a state government. Much as the core function of the federal government is the military and certain international and interstate matters, the core function of the state government is, in the modern era, roads, infrastructure, schools, and so on. And this is one of the questions that comes up when we set up government schools. There has been an attempt in recent days to advance the argument that the government should not interfere here. This is preposterous. This is the government. Those schools in Florida are government schools. The curriculum is a government curriculum. Of course there is going to be a fight over it. Of course there is going to be a debate over it. You cannot set it aside from politics. And as a result, you cannot set it aside from elections. Ron DeSantis has made it abundantly clear where he stands on this question. Some people like him, some people don't. But he won the last election with 60% of the vote. He gets a say on this. Parents, through school boards and through their vote for state government, both their state legislators and their governor, get a say on this. But we should dispense with the idea that this is some sort of incursion. This is not Washington, D.C. coming in and telling Florida how to behave, and it's not the state of Florida going into a private institution and telling it how to behave. This is a core function of the state government. Now, on the merit, I think DeSantis is right. It is absolutely dishonest to pretend 
that because you oppose the smuggling in of left-wing dogma into the curriculum, you are somehow opposed to whatever vehicle it is being smuggled under. No one in the state of Florida, no one in the state government is opposed to teaching African-American history. In fact, I suspect that the people who are trying to inject this stuff into the curriculum are cleverly choosing where to do it so that when people oppose the details of what they're trying to do, they can insist that actually uh, they oppose uh, the area holistically. African-American history is not distinct from American history. It Mm -hmm. is American history. And you cannot teach American history without teaching African-American history. It has been there from the beginning. Uh, It predates the Constitution and the Revolution. There is no point at which it is not integral. This, as an aside, is why I find Black History Month a little bit uncomfortable, because it implies that we can separate out Black History from the rest of history. We cannot do that. Slavery is America's original sin, and until very recently, we had discrimination written into our law. And Florida teaches that. This is not my opinion. This is a fact. Go look at the curriculum. Go look at the laws uh, that are being invoked here to see what is taught, what uh, is uh, not taught. But there is no need to smuggle queer theory in. There Mm -hmm. is no need to smuggle critical race theory in. There is no need uh, for these courses to resemble the pipe dreams of activist groups. The last thing I would say on this as a Floridian is that the way this is covered in the press sets up a false dichotomy. Every story that I've read on this has two quotes high up in the piece. The first from DeSantis or somebody who works for DeSantis. The other from some wacko left-wing group that is way out of line with most parents in the state, including African-American parents. So you get these stories that say, the governor said this, but the, you know, Black Liberation Front Karl Marx organization said, this is not going to be controversial. This is not going to be controversial. There is a reason that the press quotes activists or Henry Louis Gates rather than an average black parent living in Florida. This is not going to be controversial. What it's going to do is allow DeSantis once again to uh, get on the right side of a 70-30 or maybe 75-25-80-20 issue and illustrate to people with real-world examples uh, why... uh, he and many other parents, we saw the same thing in Virginia, are angry about this. And if I were on the other side of it, I would be very careful uh, as to how I proceeded because those people are going to lose. Yeah. So, Jim, at, th- at the very least, if nothing else, you, you got to wonder why with uh, historical knowledge in this country at a, at a low ebb, with civics knowledge at a low ebb, why you'd want high, sc- high school students at a public high school to take a course that has a focus at one point, according to this curriculum, on black queer studies. 
why? Why, why, why? I mean, you can wait to, to go to college to waste your time on that. And then even if you look at the, the first three parts of this course and say, oh, you know, that, that's, that seems fine. Yes, people should, should uh, learn about um, the, the Middle Passage and uh, uh, chattel slavery in this, this country and Reconstruction, all the rest of it. Anyone who is comfortable teaching the last quarter of the course, which is entirely soaked in left-wing ideology, you're not going to trust with the first three quarters of the course. And that's why you know, the, the Florida authorities have been careful to say, we, we reject this as written. And the college board clearly, you know, they say, oh, it's a work in progress and we take all sorts of input. So they're going to, you know, s- stick in a, a reading by John McWhorter or Glenn Lowry or something in the last quarter and say, oh, look, we, we listened to the, uh, the criticism and, and this is fine and, and maybe get away with it. But I, I don't think any of these quote unquote kind of studies courses should be imported from college and u- colleges and universities into the high school level because I think they're, they're inherently biased and inherently intellectually corrupt. Yeah. Now, Charlie said a lot, so I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to duplicate anything he said, but you know, why is it such an intensely a fight that, that, or a topic that spurs such intense emotions? Because when you tell the story of who we were, you're shaping the story of who we're going to be, right? Our whole sense of who we are, whether we're a good country or a bad country, what parts of our society need to be preserved, what parts of our society need to be changed, what parts need to be reformed and improved. Uh, all of our co- entire concept of who we are as Americans is shaped by our perception of who came before. If you see everybody from the pilgrims to the uh, founding fathers to Abraham Lincoln as this, you know, all part of this cishet white male heteronormative patriarchy that was oppressive of everybody else and the country was founded on genocide and white supremacy and all that stuff. Well, you're going to grow up, certainly not, if you don't hate America, you're going to hate what America has been. You might have a little bit of acceptance of what it could be, but you generally are going to go around and see a play, a society that is terrible. If a society is terrible, you're not going to want to defend it. You're not going to want to stand up for it. You're not going to want to, you're going to look at Putin or the theocrats in Iran or North Korea and say, hey, who are we to judge them? We've done all kinds of terrible things. And in fact, we've heard this argument explicitly, including from the most recent former president of the United States. In the case of this, this question of like, what do you want to teach? It's very interesting. First of all, I, Charlie is correct that how often it turns into, they don't want to teach African-American history or they don't want to teach about slavery. And it's like, no, 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 that's not, that's never yeah. been the issue here. You know, all of us have been t- taught about this going back generations and generations. You try to take to American, American history and not mention slavery. Well, I guess the, you know, the civil war was just this obscure dispute that, you know, just happened to, to come along. You can't, you know, you, you the, the only way you could, tell American history and not mention slavery, not mention segregation, not mention the systemic oppression of African-Americans is to lie. <laughs> That's the only way you could possibly tell the story of America without acknowledging and without addressing all that. Um, I think what you what people want here, though, is this idea of like, well, if we, by teaching it to the kids early on, we can shape how they see this country and we can influence how they view things politically and ideologically for the rest of their lives. And one of the odd things is that they, this, you know, all of these efforts to rewrite American history, 1619 Project, things like that, is that allegedly the old version of history was insufficiently ideological. It was insufficiently steering uh, kids into the right political direction. And yet <laughs> there were no shortage of liberal progressive young people now, were they? 
Right? The old system did exactly what it was supposed to, but somehow progressives had looked at this and said, no, no, it's not enough. We need to add queer feminist theory to the, th- the fourth quarter of this. You know, and say, oh, no, yeah. we've got to gild the lily. We've got to do even more pilot upon this. When in fact, yeah. 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 Yeah, there, sorry, Jim. Yeah, there's someone on, on Twitter, I forget who it was, but uh, you know, someone was complaining about the, the concept of intersectionality being taught in this course. And this person went, but intersectionality was a key part of African American history. You know, like a real this person thought they were making a really gotcha point. But this this is not what you don't want intersectionality in a K through twelve public high school course. You just want consensus history. And the consensus history used to be skewed. You know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it it did not include a a truthful accounting of our sins and how we got over them. But that's not that's not a problem today. I I might even quibble 30 years ago, because I certainly remember Mm -hmm. covering plenty of slavery and segregation in my high school history classes. But yeah, let's let's go further back 50 years, 60 years. Yeah. It's just really important to understand, I think, that we cannot get away from this. I'm a pluralist classical liberal, and one of the things that I try to do in politics every day is get away from topics, not because I don't want to argue them or because I don't have strong views or I'm not willing to discuss them with other people, but because I want to live in a country in which some people think this and others think that, and we tolerate each other and enjoy each other. But this is a government school. You cannot get away from this fight. We are always going to argue over what is taught in government schools. Mm-hmm. The only way of, of getting away from that fight is to abolish government schools. As long as we have them, so long as most people go to them, so long as we force people to pay for them with our taxes, so long as we have school boards and elected officials in the state government, we are going to have these fights. And of course, people who think that America works one way or that America works another way are going to try to advance that through the school system. That is part and parcel of this. And that's not mm-hmm. a problem. That That is, uh, <laughs> that is an inevitability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Phil Klein. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty clear what ha- is happening here is that this was a deliberate attempt uh, by leftist academics to try to smuggle in a lot of, um, a lot of Marxist and left-wing ideological theories into a course that they thought nobody would dare to resist. Um, And because nobody wanted to be accused of being racist and trying to erase black history. And DeSantis just decided to call them out. And now we have an examination of what's in the course and nobody's, you know, nobody's saying you can't teach Frederick Douglass or slavery or Plessy versus Ferguson or the Tulsa massacre or the Dred Scott case. Nobody's saying that we have to have like the Dunning school of reconstruction where the radical Republicans were the aggressors and were turning, you know, the white Southerners who are resisting the North as, as heroes Nobody's talking about that at all. The objections are clearly about um, this idea of just saying that we have to teach radical queer theory of these various Marxist ideologies, which have nothing to do with with actually the historical debate. It it would be like basically saying, I'm going to do a Jewish studies course, only focus disproportionately on 
Jewish intellectuals who are Marxist and push that. And then if somebody says, well, that's a bad idea, then you say, oh, well, you're trying to deny the Holocaust and you want to not teach the Holocaust. It's completely dishonest. And DeSantis is just calling them out. And I, I mean, I think just it, politically, it also shows DeSantis is savvy in sort of, um, to Charlie's point, basically picking battles where he knows that when the facts are no that he has the facts on his side and that when he knows that the left is going to go into overdrive and make a big deal out of it and call him all sorts of names and racist and this and that. And then when the facts are out that any objective person who's not already just a partisan DeSantis hater is going to look at the facts and say, okay, you know, he has a point here. Um, yeah, so even just outside of the in, in, intentions of people in, involved in the crafting of this course, if you just uh, totally innocently say, oh, I'm going to make an African-American studies course, and the way I'm going to craft it, I'm going to go to all the practitioners in African-American studies departments at colleges and universities. They're the experts. You're going to end up with what they got, you know, because that, that, that's, uh, that's the, the point of this kind of thing. It's, it's inherently a politicized Discipline, Jim Garrity, Ron DeSantis will win politically. Will win the fight over this African American studies course. Yes or no? Yes. Phil. Yes. Charlie. Yes. Yes, he will. With that, quick plug for NR Plus, digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our metered paywall. Your way to. Comment on articles and blog posts. Your way to see 90% fewer ads if you sign up and log in. Your way to get deeper into the NR community, including getting invitations to exclusive calls and events with our writers and editors and other conservative figures doing one of these in about a couple hours. Here, Charlie MBD and I uh, make practice once a month getting together with NR Plus members, relatively small groups, I don't know, 80, 100, whatever, and just talking about whatever the news of the day is or what whatever's on people's mind and having a, a, a free and informal exchange. These are uh, uh, events that, that we enjoy and, and I think uh, all the participants enjoy a lot as well. Just one of the fringe benefits of being a member of NR Plus. So please consider signing up today or tomorrow or even the day after tomorrow. So, Charlie, we have these um, horrific shootings in California, two of them in close proximity. Bizarrely, both of them carried out by elderly Asian American uh, men, one at a, a, a dance hall. He goes and shoots up a dance hall, and then, thank God, uh, heroes disarm him at a second dance hall then he shoots himself and then we have this this other guy who i, I believe um killed seven people uh was what i saw in the, the latest headline at a couple of farms in half moon bay this has of course reignited the gun debate and joe biden says we need an assault weapons ban what do you make of it well, the first thing I make of it is that Joe Biden's call for an assault weapons ban is a non sequitur because both of these attacks were carried out with handguns. And so, Charlie, I if, think we can just, uh, if we can just put a pin in that real quick. So the, the first shooter 
use something. I was just looking at the a Mac something or other. It, it looks like a a very threatening handgun from say like the 1980s. If you were making a movie about you know horrific gang violence in L.A., it seems like you would would have had a, a villain with a gun like this. What 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 is this? What is this gun that was used in Monterey Bay Park? It's the standard semi-automatic handgun that is made to look scary. Mm-hmm. It, it, it sort has of I don't know, it has like an Uzi-like look, or how would you describe it? Well, yeah, it looks a little bit like an Uzi, but this should illustrate neatly how this works, the circular logic in play here. This gun is not materially different than any other semi-automatic handgun. It was in various locations banned because it looked scary, thus it became an assault weapon. When it is used, it then is described in the press as an assault weapon, but it's not. I suppose there's one link between this event and what Joe Biden said. But really, this should illustrate the fundamental vacuousness and stasis of our gun control debate. You have two circumstances in which two elderly Asian American men use semi-automatic handguns to carry out mass shootings, and the two topics of conversation that are raised in the press and by the Democratic Party are anti-Asian hate and an assault weapons ban. I don't know what to do about this broader issue. There's no point pretending that I do. I think it is a terrible and depressing part of our national life. And I'm not indifferent to it. And I'm not throwing up my hands and saying it doesn't matter. Quite the opposite. It matters a great deal. But I don't know what to do about it. And I'm not going to pretend that I do. What I would point out, though, is that the people who think that they know what to do about it have a responsibility that I don't. And that is to be constructive and make sense. And they don't. Nothing that has been said in the aftermath of these two shootings has made sense, with the exception of those who have said, and I will unironically give them credit for their intellectual consistency, except for those people who have said, we need to ban and confiscate all firearms. There aren't many of them, but they do exist. Those people have a defensible position at their fingertips. The rest of them, they don't. Joe Biden talking about assault weapons, completely irrelevant. People talking about anti-Asian hate, completely irrelevant. And Gavin Newsom says the Second Amendment is a suicide pact. Well, let's unpack that, as the cool kids say. Okay, so the Second Amendment is a suicide pact. So tomorrow we get rid of it, then what? All you've done in that circumstance is take away a federal right to bear arms. It would still exist at 45, uh, in 45 states, Uh, California is one of the states that does not have a state right to keep and bear arms. So what happens next? Is Gavin Newsom going to go out and collect up every semi-automatic handgun, the guns that people say they don't want to go after? Are we going to move from rifles to pistols? He doesn't say. All he does is emote. He says this is a tragedy. It was. Everyone thinks that. He says he wants to stop this. Me too. Everybody thinks that. 
Then he says that the Second Amendment is a suicide pact. Unless that is an impotent reflection of horror, I don't know what he means. So, you know, I, I, I just almost despair for the state of our conversation on this because it seems to me to bear absolutely no uh, connection to the details. Yeah, so, so Phil, as we've talked about in the past, where, where I think these, the, these shootings interact with a, a possible intervention that can make a, a difference is mental health, mental illness, more pres- prescriptive treatment for the severely mental, mentally ill, red flag laws. But these, these two shootings just, they, they have no, nothing to, to do with that. I mean, the, 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 there's no indication yet that these guys were severely me- mentally ill. They, they totally bollocks the usual profile of, of such shooters on the basis of age alone. So, you know, it's, it's heartrending. It's horrible. You wish there was something that you could do, but uh, in, in these cases, e- even more than, than the others, you're they're like, how, how, what? Yeah. I mean, I think the issue is that you basically, that nothing you could possibly do to reduce the number of mass shootings would be constitutional. And nothing that you could reasonably do would make any difference to mass shootings, right? So you could say we're going to ban this type of gun, which how do you define really what an assault weapon is? It's totally arbitrary. If you define it as semi-automatic, you could. it's just like banning half the guns in the country. There are hundreds of millions of these guns around the country unless you're willing to go door to door and forcefully take all the hundreds of millions of guns, you're going to have people have guns. You're going to have, you, you can set up no, there's no system that wouldn't violate due process that could reliably um, take everyone off the street. You'd basically have to say everyone who seems a little funny, we're just going to throw them in jail just to be safe. If you did that, you'd probably reduce the number of mass shootings. But absent that, none of these types of measures are going to make a difference. And what enrages me about all of these discussions is that all of these people say, oh, we'll just get rid of guns. And they basically have absolutely no care for the idea that you're violating freedom. Um, People don't do that with other constitutional liberties. They don't just say, well, we'll just get rid of, you know, this sort of thing is dangerous that the newspaper, um, you know, published. We're just going to get rid of that. They don't do that with other forms of freedoms. They don't say, well, if the cops had the ability to just search any house, they could probably find, prevent more crime by doing that. So let's just get rid of the Fourth Amendment. Mm-hmm. Phil, to your point, they do the opposite, as we saw with the stop and frisk debate. And yeah, exactly. I am a skeptic towards stop and frisk for what it's worth. This isn't a defense of stop and frisk. I opposed stop and frisk. But exactly to your point, when the cops said, well, we'd just like to be able, given what we consider probable cause, to search anyone on the street, the people you're talking about threw their hands up and said, oh, no. Yeah. And, and the thing is, Biden will come out and say, oh, well, you don't be a f-15 with an ar-15 which is charlie has written about it's just it's just ridiculous because it one it's sort of 
it neglects the fact that you know, plen- there are plenty of examples of, you know, as we could tell from Afghanistan, of a much lower armed uh, group being able to put up enough resistance that the par- you know that the party um, in power is has to leave and give up after a while, um, including our own revolution. Um, not to mention that you'd basically have to say that we're going to have more, you know, aggressive rules of engagement against in a rebellion of people against their government than you would have in against the Taliban, right? Or are we just going to start F-15 bombing anyone who, you know, um, are going to, you know, are we going to just use like, bomber jet bomber jets to just drop bombs indiscriminately on people um that might be troublesome of course not and it of course the idea do we not think that in iran which has been the subject to on and off protests for the past over a decade do we think that if all of those people were armed and there were hundreds of millions of private arms in the hands of the citizens of Iran, that that wouldn't change the balance and make it harder for the Ayatollahs to keep control of Iran. Um, And not to mention the fact that an armed citizenry is a, is a check on government power um, because it doesn't have to get to that point. If you know that you have an armed citizenry, just like if there's a secured building it's it's a harder target than something that's not secured. Nobody thinks that if there was a properly armed person, they couldn't go into a building that has a a security guard in it and gain access to a building. But it's just harder to do it. And so, 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 so you're, you're pro- proving you've thought uh, about these uh, scenarios almost as much as Charlie has. <laughs> You guys got to got to have a beer and go go over go over all this stuff, uh, Jim Garrity. So I want to begin by making a slight clarification. At least uh, today's morning jolts about the Monterey Park shooter. And while what he used is commonly mistaken for a Mac Ten, it was technically a Cobra M11. The Cobra M11 yeah. is designed. It's designed to look like a Mac Ten, so it's it's not surprising. Um, basically this, it's this a, is why I, I, I try to never discuss a- guns at, at NR cause I know there's always someone who knows more about them than I do. So th- thanks a lot, Jim. Well, no, you are absolutely <laughs> correct. In, in every 1980s movie, this was the gun that the drug cartels were using, right? They're, they're mm-hmm. very compact. Uh, the extended magazine, by the way, I use the word clip today and already people give me grief in the comments about that. So it's got an extended magazine. A very important point in this is that under California law, this kind of gun is considered an assault weapon and thus it is banned. So there was no legal way for this 72-year-old man to who legally owned this. Now, is it conceivable that this 72-year-old man traveled out of state to obtain the gun? I suppose it's possible. I think what's more likely is that he obtained it from some sort of illegal gun dealer somewhere on the black market, somewhere in California. And that's the sort of thing that's already illegal. Oh, by the way, when police searched his house, they found all kinds of homemade suppressors and silencers are already illegal in California. Oh, by the way, murder is illegal in California. So basically the reaction of Dianne Feinstein and Newsom and all these folks who are saying, this is why we need a national assault weapons ban. They're attempting to ban a kind of gun that is already illegal. How do you ban something that is already illegal? 
The only difference you could make is that, well, okay, well, that way we won't have people buying them in, in other states, but except that's not necessarily what happened in this case. Once again, we're seeing this push to try to, you know, to find some law that will change this. What we had in this case, at least in Monterey Park, was a case of a suicidal mass shooter. Those are very hard to stop. Those are very hard. You know, it's almost akin to trying to stop a suicidal, a suicide bomber. Very tough to do. Those who want to commit suicide by cop, very tough to stop them because the reason we have all these laws, the reason we have these threats of prison time and massive fines and all that stuff is because we want to deter you. Well, if you do this, then these bad consequences will happen there. Well, what happens when the person wants to die? Very tough to do. The only way, the only effective defense against suicide bombers is very much the only effective defense against uh, suicide attempting mass shooters. A, prevent it before it stops, starts. By intervening, we can talk about red flag laws and things like that. Although it sounds like there were no particular, like people have said this the particular shooter in Monterey Park was acting strange. Nobody has pointed to something that looked like an open glaring sign that he was plotting mm-hmm. and shooting. Um, and the second thing is that uh, uh, just kind of this recognition that he had apparently legally purchased a firearm, the handgun that he used to kill himself, even though he had a apparently an arrest for illegal weapons possession back in 1990. My guess is the statute of limitations had expired, which is why he was allowed to legally purchase a handgun. But again, that's an indicator of the you know red flag laws did not kick in or indicate anything strange when he went to purchase the handgun. Now, we haven't gotten a date on when he went to purchase that handgun. But again, that shows the limitations of red flag laws. So once you're there, what can stop him? Well, in this case, there was a guy who you know, he was stopped by a good guy without a gun. By and large, that's pretty rare. If you're going to be taking on a bad guy with a gun, you'd much rather have a gun so you don't have to get in close quarters and try to grab the gun from them. You know, look, we're in a situation where I'm, I'm sure later today, Biden's going to go out. He's going to use the same old joke about deer don't wear Kevlar and all the other cliches he's used the whole time. Um, it is an indicator. The other thing I, I wrote about, which I thought was very revealing, Gavin Newsom, if a gun is illegal as sold and then used in some shooting, you are allowed to sue the illegal gun dealer. Now, oh, by the way, you also are, you know, committing a felony that can get you eight years in San Quentin. But let me tell you, don't you think all those illegal gun dealers are out there, they're going to shut down their businesses now that they can face a civil lawsuit. Doesn't that sound like an effective deterrent, guys? Jim, I, I think it's just worth reiterating that even if this guy went out of state to find this gun, the gun is no different than any other semi-automatic weapon that is legal in California. California has made this gun illegal, by name, because there's nothing about it that could be written into a law that would be effective or comprehensible as a prohibition. They have a list of guns that look scary that they have banned. This is one of them. But there was so, no so you're saying they had So you're saying, Charlie, they have to literally name it because if they just set out its characteristics, the ban would be too sweeping? Correct. There's nothing about this gun that is unusual other than it looks a particular way now if it had a magazine in it that was over the prescribed number of rounds in california that will have been illegal but that is also true of every other semi-automatic handgun you can put an extended magazine in any semi-automatic handgun and violate the law this was not a machine gun this was not an uzi this was not banned in california at its core uh, level the gun may have been banned because it's on the list of scary-looking guns, but th- the same outcome here would have been achieved with a 
bog standard $400 9mm Glock. And this is why it is so infuriating to see Joe Biden saying, well, we need an, an assault weapons ban, because he's not even talking about the case that provoked the comment. Phil Klein, next question to you. The gun control forces are making progress if we're measuring in inches rather than, say, yards. They're, they're at least very, 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 very minimally advancing the ball. Yes or no? I would say no. Charlie Cook? I don't think they are because whatever progress they've made in a handful of states has been dramatically outweighed by the combination of the Supreme Court's decision to start enforcing the terms of the Second Amendment and the American public having bought about 20 million guns a year for the last three decades. Jim Garrity. Color me extremely skeptical. I think the answer is yes, if we're we're measuring in inches or perhaps millimeters. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, on a much happier note, you went for a physical and came away with a better outcome than expected. Good genes. It's got to be good genes. Well, thank you. The big secret is to lower your expectations as much as possible. <laughs> um, people, you know, listeners may remember that last uh, year during the coverage of the Pennsylvania Senate race, it came out that John Fetterman, who at one point was tipping the scales past 400 pounds, uh, went to a doctor. The doctor diagnosed a heart murmur, told him he was in serious condition, told him, gave, made a prescription for medication. And then Fetterman did not see that doctor or any other doctor for a period of five years. That's not good. I remember hearing that story and relating to it because let's face it, you reach a certain age and you just figure the doctor's not going to have good news for you. So I've had issues. I've been on medication and all that kind of stuff. Went in for uh, the physical yesterday and I'm just bracing. I just kind of know, you know, it's been the holidays. You're eating more, you're, you know, all that kind of stuff. Came up blood pressure 120 over 70. Yes. Yes. You know, another couple of months of not having to worry about that. That came in. Okay. So, Hey, I don't know about you, but uh, that's one of the things that has gone right so far this week. The week's off to a good start. You should awesome. go try out for the Jets. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and, and also on a uh, happy note, Phil Klein's career as a shoplifter came to a very hasty and welcome end. Yeah, I feel like um, Joe Biden, you know, talking about, you know, this conservative editor always talking about Walgreens shoplifters. Um, and then I found myself becoming one. Um Last week, I was getting some ginger ales. We've had some uh, stomach bugs, and I was sort of distracted. And then I start driving. I'm halfway home, and I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't pay for anything. And um, I'm, I'm trying to turn back, and it's sort of like I'm clearly not cut off to be a mastermind criminal because <laughs> if I saw a cop, I'm like, oh, my God, they're on <laughs> <laughs> And then, They're after uh, me. <laughs> and so um, I, I drive, uh, drive back and I, I return the items and say, oh, I have to pay for this. I never paid for it. And the, the clerk said, well, why did you come back? And I was like, well, you know, I wasn't ready to, to start a, a life of crime at my age. And she said, well, it's not a crime if you don't get caught. <laughs> I wouldn't have come back. So, um, but anyway, I did pay for it. So. I officially averted 
um, the shoplifting rap and the the sort of Huffington Post headlines about uh, National mm-hmm. Review editor caught shoplifting at Walgreens. So, Charlie Cook, you made the big uh, journey to Kansas City for the divisional playoff game between your beloved Jags and the Chiefs, and it didn't turn out the way you might have hoped. It didn't. This is a less light light item than the last two, a heavier light item, if you will. The Jaguars <laughs> did lose 27 to 20. I think they could have won the game. Well, they had a chance. They They're had competitive. A, a fumble at a crucial moment, followed by an interception. But on the upside, the Kansas City Chiefs have the friendliest fan base in America. They're astonishing. For a start, I was invited to the game by a Kansas City Chiefs fan who is a reader of National Review. So thank you for the invitation. But random people kept coming up to me at the stadium and saying, hey, are you enjoying it? Are people being nice? What's your favorite thing? What hasn't been good? You know, as if everyone who is a Kansas City Chiefs fan is by that very fact dragooned into doing customer service for the Chiefs and Arrowhead and the the city of Kansas City in general. And when we were on our way out back to Jacksonville, we were at the airport bar, uh, flight had been delayed. Kansas City Chiefs fans are are buying us drinks just because we have Jaguars hats on and we lost the game. So, yes, less light in terms of the score, but more light in terms of uh, the usual sporting experience. Yeah, well, seriously, good for the people of Kansas City. There are a few things I hate more than random hostility directed at the fans of an opposing team at a, a home arena or home ballpark. I just hate it. I hate it. And this is one of the, re- the reasons I hate Rangers fans in particular. I, MSG is the worst in that respect. Maybe not the worst, but among among the worst. So I've been... Philadelphia as a Cowboys fan. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, a- absolutely. I hate I hate the Eagles, too. Um, so I've been um, uh, reading about the Middle Ages and, and uh, um, with a particular interest in the question of, of how the modern West uh, came to be and what made the West so great. And I think I now have the answer. There is a book came out a couple years ago called The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous by a guy named Joseph uh, Heinrich that is uh, a- absolutely fascinating, argues that Western Christianity through blowing up the, uh, cousin marriage and traditional kinship networks created the predicate for all sorts of developments that would create the the modern West, basically you you didn't get wouldn't get individuals as we know them without this development. Of course, it's not what the church intended, but it's what happened, and it happened uniquely in the West. So, if you read this book together with I read this a, a while ago, came out a while ago, Deidre McCloskey's brilliant bourgeois dignity, plus this book I might have mentioned a little while ago called Escape from Rome. You, you take these three books and put them in a blender. Um, I'm pretty sure this is the answer in these three books. So if, if you two are interested in, in the, um, this, this question, I recommend looking at that trio of tomes. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? I'm going to make a rare case where I pick a House editorial. Biden's transparency claims have lost credibility. You know, the Biden document scandal has been one of the biggest, you know, items in the news of the last two, three weeks or so. And you can find a lot of commentary that's like, 
this is the worst thing ever. Will Biden go to jail? And you can find a lot of stuff of Biden defenders saying, ah, that's just wacky Joe being disorganized. It happens to all of us. No big deal. And I really feel like this House editorial nails the right tone and the right balance of, yes, this is a big deal. This is enormously embarrassing for the administration. This is enormously hypocritical. And oh, by the way, there's some really serious questions of exactly when and where this came forward uh, to the National Archives instead of to law enforcement, et cetera. It's knowledgeable. It's well-informed. It's even-handed. And it, you know, rips Biden where he deserves it instead of going overboard and frothing at the mouth. So, Klein, what's your pick? Um, I'm going to pick Dan McLaughlin's uh, piece that we have up on the site now called the Uh. 2022 Turnout Puzzle. Um, basically, I mean, one of the reasons why it's a turnout story from, uh, election day coming out at the end of January is that, uh, Dan just took a lot of time going through data, waiting for more. Crazy. Really? That's what Dan did. (laughs) It's hard to believe. (laughs) Uh, But it really has some interesting insights into what the 2022 electorate, um, the one that showed up, what they looked like, and how that might affect how we view upcoming elections. And so it's really, I mean, it was big, there was a big debate over turnout and what to learn from it after the election, but you can't really know right after the election because you don't have as much information. And Dan, um, as he often does well, did a really deep dive. There's charts, there's a lot of information. It's uh, really well done. Charlie. Well, I was also going to choose Dan McLaughlin, but instead I shall choose Douglas Murray's piece on the American right or some of the American right's lack of enthusiasm toward helping Ukraine fight the Russians, particularly the last paragraph in which he asks, what attitude would the right like to take to this If you oppose sending American troops around the world and you oppose arming countries fighting for their own survival, then do you have any remaining foreign policy at all? I think that is exactly the right question to ask. So my pick is by our Buckley fellow, Luther Abel. What happens when a regular guy mishandles classified information and he was in the Navy and got extensive training on how to handle classified documents? And in the training session, I might be messing this up slightly, but it gives the sense of it. He, he had one sheet, of, a blank sheet of um, uh, blank sheets of paper that he labeled unclassified and some sheets he labeled classified just while they're going through these exercises. Then he ran out of unclassified sheets. So he crossed out one of the classified <laughs> classified markings on one of these sheets of paper and got hell for it. <laughs> just, just to bring home the point of how sensitive this stuff is, how you never want to mess it up. And if that, if that's a standard for low level people, it should be the standard for, for, uh, uh, famous and powerful people as well. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. You rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes it sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Charlie. Thanks to Phil. Thanks to Jim. Thanks to Dividend Cafe. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and we'll see you next time.